The other night we looked at the opening section of Anatalakana Sutta, the not-self characteristic. Uh, this is the, regarded as the second formal teaching of the Buddha. And he taught it after a meditation retreat in which the five companions, now the five bhikkhus, have all attained to the first stage of awakening. And he teaches it to them to take them all the way to full enlightenment. Um, and we um, did the first section where basically the Buddha is talking about the nature of self, and in particular, self is something that is constructed. It's a project. It's not a thing, and it's not a someone. So the Buddha says, and he goes through the five aggregates with the same argument, uh, what do you think, is body permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Bhante. And that which is impermanent, is it painful or pleasurable? Is it Dukkha or Sukkha? Dukkha, Bhante. And that which is Dukkha and subject to change, is it appropriate to regard it in terms of, this is mine, I am this, this is myself? And they say, certainly not, Bhante. Which you will be pleased to know is the correct answer. Think of what would have happened if they said, yeah, yeah, uh, sounds fair to me. The whole history of Buddhism <laughs> could have been come to a grinding halt. So there, there, there are three movements that construct the self. Um, craving, conceit, view, tanha, mana and ditti. Um, tanha, literally thirst, essentially it's drivenness. Um, and here it's the urge to possess uh, and it, in this context the, it, this um, urge to possess has power because I find my reality in my possessions so um, as the owner of this I am I am the one who owns this um, what we possess reflects back on us as the owner and if the possession is real well the owner, owner has to be real um, and this is of course a basic principle in advertising where what's being sold often is an image of oneself uh, if I get this or that um, product then I become this or that person um, Actually, I'm reminded, the last time I went to my last trip to India, I always fly on Singapore Airlines. And they have ads, and they have sometimes very bizarre ads, very interesting ones. And there were two ads that were shown again and again whenever you want to watch a movie. And um, they were both about the finance well, one was about definitely about the finance industry. And the other was some unknown um, international important industry. But the, the first ad was for a Western hotel chain. And the hero of the ad was this very young, good-looking chap, nicely dressed, cruising from hotel to hotel where he would do these incredibly significant business deals which would make him lots of money. 
And in between, he'd be leaping into hotels, swimming pools and swimming up and down, being very vigorous. And he's, very, of course, very good-looking. And so he's cruising the planet, going from hotel to hotel, looking incredibly good and making heaps of money. <laughs> and a couple of times in the ad, as he's walking one way through the lobby, walking the other way is this gorgeous young woman, and their eyes meet significantly. But they pass on, because both have got money to make, presumably. <laughs> and the message that was apparently being registered is, is if, you, if you stay in the, our hotel, you can be like this person, who represents some kind of ideal. He's global, he's young, good-looking, and rich. And he kind of floats above the rest of the planet. Um, and then the other ad was, was a bank and there was a, another young guy but he wasn't as good looking but he's pretty good looking um, but he was um, working in this bank and he was in, in charge of a team in this bank and so he's sitting in his office looking at his team members and all going all working really hard and he's gazing at them with a certain sympathetic compassion and he leaps up off his desk and then the next scene he's handing out coffees to them. They're gratefully receiving them because their boss is obviously concerned for their welfare and in the final scene he's signing a deal with this older chap at the airport where the older chap has his private jet uh, where he's just made some incredible deals which he's helping the older chap advance his fortune and beside the older chap is the older chap's son who's kind of gazing upon this whole sacred event, the signing of the contract and they disappear and the young banker gazes after them with this benevolent smile on his face. So again, you get this, this ideal. They're both variations of the contemporary capitalist ideal. What I found interesting was the two selves that were being portrayed, um, each one was meant to be incredibly attractive. The Western one was utterly alone, totally alienated from every other human being on the planet, um, just passing through um, and this was apparently supposed to be really attractive. To me, he looked like a hungry ghost. At least the, the Chinese guy was connected. Like he, ha he's, he, he had a, um, people in his office who were like his family, and he was looking after them. And his client, who he was looking after, was definitely family. So he was looking after that family. So he, he was somehow connected to human you know, families, interconnection, society. So he was still completely driven by greed, but he was much more, his self was much more grounded than the self of the other one. And I found the, the Chinese one much more attractive than the Western one. But they're both selling selves. Both ads, that's what they're doing. They're not, uh, if, you, if, you cannot, if you go for that self, maybe you'll buy that product and subconsciously becoming, at least in one's imagination, that person. So you have the urge to possess, uh, then mana, uh, which we said is measuring, um, and this is the sense of separation and identification. So I measure something out, then I fix its borders, and I've turned the universe into two. There's this here and that there. Self, other, this, that. 
Um, so this is the, the fundamental sense of separation that is at the, the root of the self. I'm the one in here. Use a lot are the ones out there. And finally, view ditti. This is the narrative, often comes out as the narrative of myself. The story that I, the stories that I told myself that define me and define the world that I live in. Um, so these, so the self is a project. Uh, it's something that we're doing. Um, this is mine. I am this. This is myself. And it's always, again, we mentioned last time, it's always specific for the Buddha. Like, this is mine. Like, this recorder, these glasses, these clothes, this position, this body, this, 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 this. He's, the Buddha's not saying that there's this you know, something out there, which is a self. He's saying that for each experience that arises, um, awareness lands on it and seizes it. This, this is myself. But of course, that project can't stop because this, whatever it is, turns into something else. It disappears. So what? Do I, what happens to me? Well, this is myself. But that disappears. So this is myself. So there's this quality of restless drivenness in the construction of a self. This, of course, is craving. Um, always there's this sense of on the one hand separation and the flip side of that is the sense of all this is happening to someone and view is the, the stories that we weave around this whole process and out of these movements we create um, an identity so then the Buddha moves on from there he says therefore and again, again he goes through each of the five aggregates Therefore, for any kind of body, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, superior or inferior, near or far, all body should be regarded with penetrating understanding realistically in this way. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. For any kind of feeling, for any kind of perception, for any kind of construction for any kind of awareness, past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, superior or inferior, near or far, all awareness should be regarded with penetrating understanding realistically in this way. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. Uh, so here we have the, the, um, the heart of the, of, of the sutta. Um, and what he's presenting is a practice. So again, he's not presenting a doctrine. Um, self is a practice. It's a construction project. Not self is a practice. It's taking apart. It's deconstructing. Um, we become intimate with this whole process of constructing a self, and we learn to recognise the clinging inherent in this project and therefore the pain and the unsatisfactoriness of it and then we, let, we start letting it go um, so when a lot of what we're doing when we, when we meditate is actually seeing 
ourselves construct ourselves. And we do this, uh, we begin, this process begins in the very mundane experience of distraction. Once we become sensitive to the movements of the mind, we realise distraction has a tremendous amount to teach us. Because often what we're doing in it (coughs) is busily creating someone. So we're busily creating uh, someone who's far away out of here, having a good time. Or more frustratingly, we create someone who's far away out of here having a bad time having a worse time than the one who's actually sitting here. But we find this attractive because we keep doing it. There's something attractive about this self. Uh, We talked about... Yeah, there's something attractive about being miserable. Um, It gives um, a sense of certainty, a sense of stability, solidity. This is me, I'm the most miserable person on the planet. Um, other people try for the title, but they don't get there. <laughs> I remember when I was many years ago when I was at, at Mahasi Centre. Well, going back further, when I started meditating, what I wanted was a bit of bliss. That's all. I didn't think it was a great deal to desire. I was miserable. I wanted some bliss, and I had read these books. And apparently, you meditate, you attain deep absorptions, and you're blissful. So I thought this sounds fair enough. So I started meditating. And for some strange reason, I never got to the bliss. My body hurt, my mind hurt, my mind was restless, it was a struggle, but I kept slogging away because I thought one day the bliss will come. And then, as I got to know people who were also doing meditation practice, I discovered, to my horror, that other people were getting the bliss. <laughs> and I remember one time I was going to this meditation retreat and I was being given a lift by this young woman who was also going we were both quite new in the meditation and I was shocked to discover that from the first time that this woman sat down and meditated she went into bliss what? <laughs> I was horrified it was almost like a personal betrayal (laughs) but she was horrified to discover that every time I sat down there was just nothing but pain and anguish we were horrified at each other (laughs) some people have this karma it's amazing so um, actually I've forgotten why I went on that particular tangent (laughs) probably about being attracted to things yeah, that's right. Anyway, so I cultivated this whole situation into a, into a particular bizarre form of identity. So years later, I'm at Mahasi Centre doing relentless meditation practice week after week, month after month. <laughs> and every now and again, an experience which looked, smelt, tasted and felt suspiciously like bliss <laughs> would arise. And I would note it Secure in the knowledge that this won't last. (laughs) And sure enough, it didn't. And then every now and again, an experience would arise which looked, smelt, tasted and felt suspiciously like misery, pain and anguish. And I thought, this will stick around. (laughs) And it did. All of which showed my 
depth of understanding of the human chitta until finally it dawned on me that I was making it happen. My determination to identify with the misery was feeding it and extending it and my determination, my, my determined belief that anything pleasant wasn't going to last because it wasn't me, it wasn't for me, it wasn't my possession, of course encouraged it to disappear. So my um, identification completely influenced the whole experience that I was undergoing. But what was I found the weirdest of all was my determination to identify with pain. Like, where did that come from? But I was constructing, I had constructed an identity out of it. And the thing is, I was familiar with it. It was comfortable. I know who I, I knew who I was. I knew what was going on. I could understand the whole process. So, um, self, the self is deeply attractive, even when it's painful. The job is to, that we have is to deconstruct it. And this is what the Buddha is talking about when he has this formula, this is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself, it's the not. The not is the centre of this discourse. I mean, essentially what it's about is not. And the not starts to cut through what we take to be real, what we, are, what we assume is real and me um, now you notice that the Buddha in his usual thorough way tells us exactly what kind of experience should be subjected to this examination so what is it that we should look at in terms of um, not mine not this not myself it's any kind of experience, past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, superior or inferior, near or far. Which is a lot, obviously. But basically, it's any experience that can be characterised by location in space, in time or in quality. Um, so, internal, external, um, near or far. These are categories based on space. Where is it? Past, future or present. This is, these, this is based on time. Gross, subtle, superior, inferior. These are qualities. So any experience that can be characterised by being located in either space or time or quality is covered by this discourse. Which boils down to any experience subject to mana, to conceit. Because it's conceit that creates the fundamental sense of separation that enables an experience to be, uh, to be experienced as this rather than that. Uh, it's mana which enables an, ev an, an event to be experienced as here rather than there than past rather than future and so on as important rather than trivial or trivial rather than important these are the, and these categories what they do is they create meaning 
and significance. Every experience that gives, provides me with some kind of meaning, some kind of experience, is raw material for creating a self. And what the, this practice is all about is just tearing all that apart, deconstructing it, knocking it back, not, not, not. Um, uh, which means that it's basically, this is a very radical teaching. It's, it's designed to cut away everything. And the Buddha goes on, seeing in this way, the trained, cultivated student is, is disenchanted with body, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with constructions, disenchanted with awareness. With disenchantment, obsession fades, and from the fading of obsession comes liberation. With liberation comes the understanding of liberation, along with the knowledge, birth is exhausted, the highest life is fulfilled, what should be done is done, there is no more this. So this is this describes the the practice all the way to full awakening. Uh, now the practice of not self is essentially cognitive. Um, it's it's a wisdom practice. So it's all about seeing and understanding. Uh, we investigate, we see. Um, what we normally don't look at because we take it for granted as obvious and in practice as the practice develops one of the challenges of it is that we've talked about it as uh, we are becoming increasingly intimate with the experience and going deeper and deeper into the chitta so things are becoming more subtle and more refined and therefore that can be difficult to actually pinpoint. But also, we're getting deeper into what we normally never see because we simply assume it. We take it for granted. It's so obvious, we don't pay it any attention. Um, So if I'm disturbed, for example... Uh, today I'm disturbed today is a difficult day I'm quite disturbed and here are the symptoms boom 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 and this is what I'm thinking about it and these are the conclusions that I've drawn and that seems to be what's important that's what's going on but what we don't see because it's so obvious is that all of this is the product of the chitta in a certain state a certain sensitive, vulnerable, painful, disturbed state. But we don't actually examine that state. Partly because it's so subtle that it's not immediately obvious. It's not, and it's not immediately obvious, largely because we take it for granted. Well, this is me. I am disturbed. Um, and so what's important when I am disturbed is my disturbance. So that's where all the attention goes. And so um, this is what I want you to fix. I'm disturbed. Can't you do something about it? 
So all of this is coming out of the self and it assumes the reality of the self and the world created by the self. But the practitioner's job is to recognise, ah, there's disturbance, then what's in here, what's happening in the chitta, deep down, that's creating, that's feeding this sense of disturbance. And what that is, um, is actually got nothing to do with me. It's something much more elemental. So in the, we emphasised in the beginning of the, of the retreat the relationship to body, and we talked about the elements, we practised the elements. So there's hardness, softness, movement, hot, cold, etc., when we examine the experience of the body, it resolves into these elements. Now, the thing about these elements is that none of them are me. I am not the hardness. I am not the softness. I am not the movement. So, even then, this is where we're breaking apart the project of the self. But as we go deeper into the chitta, this becomes more and more evident. And again it's often through what we would normally call distraction, what we would normally dismiss as not worthy of our concern, because I'm busy with my meditation, and so the distraction is just trying to get in the way. It's that which actually reveals the project. So the practice of, self, of not-self is cognitive, but the result is affective. The heart is transformed. Um, the heart calms with the fading of obsession, and with that, liberation becomes possible. So, um, the Buddha f- presents first the cognitive, see what's going on, and in order to gain an entry into the heart, into the citta, so that the realm of what we've talked about as Vedana can start to transform um, but that's the that's the deeper realm and it's actually more difficult to to get to and to transform and the turning point is nibbida disenchantment so we're going to have a look at uh, this this term um, nibbida comes from the root vid to experience to find and the prefix near, N-I-R, which means out. <coughs> so nibbada is a finding out. It's a discovery of something. Um, enchantment always implies delusion. Um, when we are enchanted by something, we are intoxicated by it, uh, this happens only when we don't fully understand it. Um, so we are enchanted with something, for example, when we feel that if only I get this, then all my problems will be solved. Uh, if only I do that, then I'll be okay. So it might be a job. If only I get the job that I've always wanted, then everything will be all right. It might be the appropriate partner. If only I get him or her, then everything will be all right. It might be the 
the um, the latest computer or whatever. Uh, it can be anything from the most trivial to the most uh, significant. But the basic relationship is, if I can only get this, then everything will be alright. So this is enchantment. And it's, it's based on um, delusion, because in fact, when we get whatever we get, it, um, it doesn't solve all the problems. Whatever it is, turns out to be impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. So it's just part of this endless cycle. So the experience of nibbida, of disenchantment, reveals the disappointment in our expectations. Uh, ultimately, compared to what I wanted, I find myself disappointed. So nibbida, or disenchantment, is a finding out. It's also implies a, uh, an experiencing out, a moving out away from our normal way of experiencing something to something quite new. So we think something is going on but we're wrong. And then at some point, ah, we suddenly realise, no, something else is going on. I've been completely, completely mistaken about this all this time. Now I can see something else is going on. Uh, it might be, you know, one example would be we're having problems with someone because this particular someone is a complete total bastard. You know, not to put too fine a point on it because they've, they've done something which is totally unacceptable and they could have no motive other than the desire to cause me personally great distress. Otherwise they wouldn't have done this. What other possible motive would be? Would there be? But then we might find out that what we thought was going on was not, that something completely different is going on. And that we had no idea what this person's situation actually was. We had no idea what their motivations were or what they were trying to accomplish. And suddenly we realise this and the experience is, ah, oh, that's what's happening. And immediately all that aversion and distress and so on, it's gone because it, we can see that something else is going on. So the whole relationship changes. So nibbida has, disenchantment has this quality as well. We realise something else is going on and then our whole relationship to it changes. Um, classical, some classical examples of nibbida. Um, when Siddhartha was a young man and he had his famous experience when he realised the universality of ageing, sickness and death. So he's living his life and there's a certain reality that he takes for granted. His own reality, that of his family and that of his people. And suddenly, bang, he sees differently and everything has changed. The whole world within which he has lived disappears. And he's in another world. And he needs to be doing something completely different. <clears throat> this is nibbana, this is disenchantment. And in his case, that experience sent him off on the search for awakening. Then um, the second classic example, again with Siddhartha, his disillusionment with asceticism. 
You remember we talked about that. One day he realised this is a complete waste of time. This doesn't work. And again it would have been this profound shift, this moving out, finding out, where he suddenly realised that everything he took for granted in terms of his whole spiritual identity, the great ascetic, champion ascetic, and he had, it's clear from what he was telling his students years later, that he really had built up his identity as he was the champion ascetic of all time. And he suddenly realised the whole thing is a crop. It doesn't work. And he's in this completely different world, and like the first time, he doesn't know what to do about it. All the rules have suddenly changed, and he has to work out what he's doing within this new world. Uh, and so that propelled him off to the Bodhi tree and awakening. <coughs> so Nibbida is uh, disenchantment has this turning aspect. And it can be quite powerful, as in these two examples, but it can be very, very subtle uh, as well. Um, but it's both cognitive and affective. It's both head and heart. So in terms of the heart, the affective, the heart is moved to say enough. And this happens through cultivating an intimacy with the experience. Um, people who are um, oppressed by particular obsessions, for example, when they meditate, uh, sometimes um, it can become very distressing because it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And, you know, when, when will it end? And the answer simply is it will end when we've had enough. It's that simple. Once I've had enough, I will stop. But until I've had enough, I'll keep going. But how do I reach this point where the heart, not the head, but the heart knows that's enough? It comes through this intimacy of experience with it. So not being um, separated from it by constructing yourself out of it, but again by this increase, developing intimacy into the heart, into the chitta going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And when we're intimate with it, then that move naturally occurs. At one point, we realise that's enough. And at that point, it simply stops. And sometimes that is, is very sudden. So people report, for example, they have a particular, a particular obsession that arises in the mind... And sometimes a meditator will come into interview kind of a bit spaced out because they've been harassed by this obsession for years and they'll report, it arose, I recognised it and I just thought, no. And it stopped. And I haven't seen it since. Uh, and this is nibida. This is, the, this is disenchantment. Could the same could could uh, that be applied to drugs and alcohol? Yeah, it's the same process. 
Mm. It's, it's like when when do people stop? It's literally when they've had enough. Mm. Actually, there's uh, one Sydney barrister, the guy who created the series about the rake. Rake, yeah. Mm-hmm. He he's got a column in in Fairfax, and in one of his columns he said. I wish somebody had told me when I was young that the human body can only consume so much alcohol in one lifetime. Because if I had known, I would have paced myself. <laughs> but as it is, by the time I was 40, I had already consumed it. <laughs> and, and I he, thought he was going to say, Chief, Charles would, Water Street. I would have done it all at once. <laughs> So that was Nibida. What he was describing was Nibida. It's like at 40, he suddenly realised, oh, I've had enough now. And at that point, he stopped. And it's a completely natural development. That kind of stuff lasts. Hmm? That kind of stuff lasts. Hmm. He'll stay sober. Yeah. Yeah. If the the disenchantment is deep enough, then he won't go back. There's no need to go back. Being there, done that. This is an expression of, of nibbida, of disenchantment. Um, so it's affective. The heart is moved to say enough. It's cognitive. It's a finding out. It's an understanding that arises through that response. So now I can see what's been going on. Now I understand it. It's also affective of the heart because desire has changed Um, what previously seemed desirable now is not I just don't want that anymore other things are now desirable Um, and so these are the things that I pursue so the heart um, changes Um, one of the transitions that practitioners go through is when old pleasures drop away but new ones haven't actually don't seem to have taken their place yet and this kind of a affective confusion can can arise uh, I remember once when I was in Hawaii one of my Zen Zen friends who was a very he was a very interesting chap he was if you wanted a um, a kind of typical Example of the Zen personality, or one particular kind of Zen personality. It was him. He was just totally whatever was happening. Bang! He was. That was it. This directness and almost fierceness of engagement with whatever was happening. Anyway, we're walking down this country road in Maui one day, and he suddenly stopped, and this look of complete confusion and bewilderment came over his face. It was totally uncharacteristic. And I stopped and I said what's the matter? What's the problem? And he said, suddenly I realise I don't know what I want. <laughs> I really hit him. But, and it is, a, it can be quite a profound experience when you actually realise that. Because our whole life is geared around what we want. But what if we suddenly realise I don't know what I want? Who am I then? Where do I go? (laughs) Or sometimes we find that what we used to want, what used to be pleasurable, is gone. Maybe we're not quite sure about what's replacing it. 
And of course, when one set of desires drop away, along with it could well drop away a whole social network. Mm-hmm. On the phone, why did you want to come out? You haven't come out with us for months. What's the problem? Well, I just don't want to. And then social network, gone. And then the person is left, well, where is my social network? Because I haven't actually found other people who want what I want. So this, um, uh, the heart changes, desire changes, and with it, the world within which we live. If When our heart is changed, the world that we live in is different. And this, again, is cognitive. Um, the world is different. What previously was hidden is now obvious. What previously we could never have seen is now as clear as day. So disenchantment, this has this transformative turning around effect. Um, and again, when, with this discourse, you, you can read it, if you read it superficially, you can get the impression, oh, disenchantment happens just once. Yeah. But it's happens again and again and again at different levels. One way of looking at it is it's a process of simple maturity. The example that I used to give is I would challenge my audience. I said, okay, so how, how many of you today um, uh, follow, chase the same desires that you had when you were 10? You know, it's, they've all changed now. We're all chasing different things because we've matured. So what, we, what was desirable when we were 10 is no longer desirable today. And there was one Englishman in the audience who immediately objected, and he said, except football. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the, the exception to the Buddha's teaching. It's always the exception to something. Um, so the Buddha says with, with disenchantment obsession fades and from the fading of obsession comes liberation so the fading of, of fading of obsession this is viraga which we've already talked about uh, raga usually translated lust or passion is literally colour viraga is literally the fading of colour so the, the image is you have a um, cloth that's uh, dyed and that when you wash it looks the same, you wash it, looks the same you wash it, you look, looks the same you wash it, you wash it, you wash it at some point you look at it and you realise it's not the same anymore it's faded and then it progressively fades and this is the, the fading of obsession and again what we're talking about is a natural process of maturity um, we're not so driven, we have some distance um, that we didn't have before. And it c- comes about gradually. And part of this, the gradual aspect of it is that we don't notice the step-by-step aspect. <coughs> so it's easy, especially when we're, when we're doing the meditation, it's like we're at the, the coal face, we're looking at the... the the detail and the specifics. It's a very in-your-face kind of relationship, which is characteristic of mindfulness, that it has this direct in-your-face feel to it. And we don't 
notice the changes that are happening because they're, they're so slight day by day. It's like we don't notice ourselves grow up. We don't notice ourselves getting old until something happens. Oh, I, I used to be able to do this, but I can't do it now. Um, we don't notice that how that happens step by step by step. And it's the same with the fading of obsession. Uh, we don't notice every step of the way, but there, there are points when we realise, oh, things are different now. My relationship to the world is different from what it used to be. My relationship to others, to myself, has changed. It's different now. So this is um, a gradual um, process. With disenchantment, obsession fades, and from the fading of obsession comes liberation. Um, lip, the liberation, this is vimutti in Pali or vimoksha in Sanskrit. Uh, and vimutti comes from the verb munchati, to release. And it's the same verb that is used in archery. So if you imagine um, firing a bow, um, we pull the bow back until it's maximum tension, and then at that point, release. And the arrow is, is released, and it goes um, away very suddenly. So liberation has this implication of suddenness. Um, a sudden shock of awareness. It's like suddenly, oh, it's different. I've never seen this before. This is new. Um, so we, we suddenly know something quite new. Un and this is, and again, it's unexpected. It always appears as if by accident. Um, my old Zen teacher, Robert Aiken Roshi, used to say that um, um, awakening always comes about by accident. The practice makes us accident prone. <laughs> and that's, that's the causal relationship. It's like nothing that we do in the practice causes liberation. But it sets up the conditions in which the accident might occur. And of course, in, in the Zen stories, are full of these accidents. They 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 really like these accidents. And it's unless you know the backstory, then it's you get the impression oh, it's like it just falls from heaven. But of course, it doesn't just fall from heaven. It comes about through years of preparing the the conditions. Um, so liberation implies this sudden shock. And again, it can be gross or very, very subtle. Um, suddenly something is new. It's perhaps undefinable. Perhaps we can't even pinpoint what it is. But it's no longer normality. Something has changed. <coughs> With liberation comes the understanding of liberation. And here, um, and I think this kind of move is typical of the Buddha. Liberation could be seen as affective. Mm -hmm. And, but also cognitive, but understanding definitely cognitive. 
Uh, understanding implies a reflexive distance, a looking back on the situation. Uh, we know ourselves and we know ourselves to be different. So we have a sense of what happened or the significance of what happened. Um, in other, we've been talking about this before in terms of the meaning of an experience. Something happens oh, and then we get a sense of what this means. So I might recognise... Um, I might read the experience in some way. Oh, I've just seen impermanence, or I've seen dukkha, or I've seen not-self. Now what we're doing is putting a meaning on the experience. Um, and with that meaning comes a sense of, well, this is who I am, and this is the world. So, in a sense, we're creating a new self. But it's a different self. Uh, and it's a self-held differently than before but it's the meaning that gives the experience significance and therefore changes the way that we live so with liberation comes the understanding of liberation along with the knowledge birth is exhausted the highest life is fulfilled what should be done is done there is no more of this now this is um, in, a, in a linear sense this passage will be read as full awakening in a non-linear sense this is more like the experience of emptiness that can occur a number of times but each time that it occurs it has this quality of there is no more of this and that this indicates the place where we ground ourselves um, the final layer of concept that tells us who we are and what this means. Um, so the, the, the this here indicates um, the I am this. It's what, the, what the, the awareness lands upon to create something and someone out of. And it's taken away. There is no more this. Pull out the rug. And there's nothing. Um, <clears throat> we've looked at the self as a process. The self is a project. A project never completed. So we define ourselves through story and our story is never completed. It's never finished. How many people here have actually completed the last chapter? Or is there another one that's going to come? It's always another one that's going to come. Um, there's always another episode in the drama of our lives. And so part of the meaning of this experience right now uh, is always the fact that it's the prelude to something else which is going to come next. And this is why death is such a challenge to the self. Because death represents a sudden cutting off of the story. Suddenly, chop, 
stories cut. And it always arrives, arrives as a cheat. It's like following a TV drama, which you're really invested in, and they suddenly stop it before the end. You know, there's definitely several more episodes at least that could be squeezed out of this, and then suddenly it's all over. And you can't help it before everything's wrapped up. And you cannot help but feel cheated by this. It can't be anything else than a complete cheat. And death is like this. Um, so we may be ready to die, but never today. <laughs> because we haven't wrapped up the loose ends yet. There's another episode that has to, be, has to come first. But the final episode never does arrive. And so when it comes to an end, it's always a shock and it's always a cheat. Seen people ready for death, like they've come to a point of peace, you know. Mm. They've been sick a long time, perhaps, or a while, and, and they are actually they can be that they're, they're quite ready. Yeah, I'm talking about the normal human condition rather than someone who's been practicing and preparing for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is hence the power of the no more, nut param. Um, in terms of the practice, in terms of realisation, that right now, already in the middle of the drama, where one day succeeds another, succeeds another, already there is no more. Um, This is the realisation that there really is no next. Um, That this is all that there is. And this is all that there ever has been or ever will be. So there there never has been any past and there never has been any future. Uh, So this this understanding can happen now. In fact, it can only happen right now. Um, And when it happens, it's quite, it's just bleeding obvious that nothing is going to happen next because there is no next. And nothing ever did happen because there's no past. Um, so there's this, the understanding of anatta always arrives, it always presents with a sense of completion that there's nothing further needed there's nothing extra has to be added Uh, there's no possibility of anything extra and this is about, this is the the abandonment of the conceit I am Um, the abandonment of asmi mana Uh, and again mana is measurement and comparison so, for example, past and future depend on mana because past and future can only exist when they're measured against the present. And the present can only exist when, they're measured, when it is measured against past and future. Uh, I can only exist measured against you and you can only exist 
measured against me. Good can only exist measured against bad. Bad can only exist measured against good. But when mana drops away, all positions cease. They're just gone. <coughs> so no past, no present, and no future. No duality. Yeah, no duality. This is, mana is all about duality. And the um, cessation of mana is all about non-duality. These are duality and non-duality are terms that entered later, but the Buddha is talking about the same thing. Um, and I think this is why Anatta Lakana Sutta ends with silence. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. The not is the most we can say, and even this is too much. As soon as we reach out and say, this is what it is, then we're back in mana, in conceit, because this can only exist measured against that. So as soon as we, we move in to make something out of the experience, we're back in mana, we're back in conceit. So all we've got is silence, or well, at least that's the culminating point of this discourse um, it's not a passive silence it's action in the world but without an actor it's movement but without someone who moves it's life but without someone who is living a path without anybody walking it but at that point, there is nothing to be said about it. Even not is too much. This is what the Blessed One said, and the group of five bhikkhus rejoiced in the Blessed One's words. And as he spoke, the minds of the group of five bhikkhus were fully... Actually, it should be the hearts of the group of five bhikkhus were fully liberated from the taints. Then there were six arahants in the world. So arahant, of course, fully awakened, and now there are six people fully awakened, the Buddha and the five bhikkhus. So the Dharma wheel is turning, and Buddhism is taking shape. There's now a community of awakened ones that exist. Any questions or comments? Okay. Thank you very much. Sound, 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 sound.